Bibles to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue in our exposition of the book of Colossians. Um, we had a, it's been a couple weeks since we are in Colossians. Last we were in um, chapter 3 and verses 1 to 4, and now we're in chapter 3 and verses 5 to 8. And uh, I'll read from the beginning of the chapter for sake of context. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for these instructions. We thank you for the conviction that these words bring, for confronting us in our sin and um, challenging us to put to death the sin that remains in us, to put it away, to leave it behind, to walk in newness of life. And so, Lord, as we look at these words, as we look at the principles, the implications, the applications of these words, help us to receive them, to apply them, to live in light of them. And, Lord, as I speak your word, I pray that my words would be your words and that your words would go forth in power and precision and authority to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, it's January 1st, and we are officially in a new year. And with the change in the year and the holiday of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day comes the excitement and hope of new beginnings, a fresh start, a change, which is why we, um, not only in our culture, but all around the world, have New Year's resolutions. Because deep down, I think that every human being desires change for the better. Uh, To leave behind those missed opportunities, past failures, and bad habits of the last year, and to press on to a new future of establishing good habits, seizing opportunities, experiencing success in the new year. However, every single person defines these things differently according to their own values and desires. And we we see that in the culture, in in, uh, the culture's New Year's resolutions about uh, looking better, getting more fit, um, being healthier, having more uh, material success. But for Christians, our definitions of failure and success and what are good or bad habits and behaviors to change should be determined by God's word and what it says concerning God's will for us, which is 
primarily our salvation and our sanctification, our growth in conformity to the image of Christ, our growth in holiness. And when believers approach the new year, we should naturally think of change, of greater pursuits in our sanctification, of making New Year's resolutions which are God-honoring. Because this is what the Christian life is all about. Changing and growing into greater degrees of Christ-likeness as we strive to honor Him in every aspect of our lives. And so we should all be thinking about how we can do things differently this year. Which sins and ungodly habits we need to put off and which God-honoring habits and righteous behaviors we should strive to put on. However, we should not make our resolutions and plans to change like most people in the world do by setting unrealistic goals that are too high and lofty for us to attain in moments of emotionally charged enthusiasm, goals that will be pursued with unsustainable plans of action, goals that will... Um, soon be abandoned because of a lack of immediate and significant growth and change. Uh, as you know, we, we see in the culture in, in many um, gyms and fitness clubs, they're, they're excited about this time of year because they get a lot of memberships. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> but come February, March, uh, <laughs> it, it, the, the gyms start. And, and the, the, the fitness... Um, you know, gurus and, and those people that really like to exercise, they're, they're kind of upset around this time of year, but they're, they're happy again around February and March because then the gyms, um, they, they empty a little bit more so they can exercise freely. <laughs> you know? uh, but, you know, when we look at our New Year's resolutions, and, and especially from a, a spiritual perspective, we're not to be like that. We're not to do it in this... Um, this time of emotionally charged enthusiasm. We make these lofty goals where we're supposed to uh, set our goals and plans realistically according to God's word um, so that we would have true and lasting change. It, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be a, a flash in the pan. That, that whatever change that we strive for, whatever um, sins we seek to put off and holiness we seek to put on, we... We hope that that would last, that the change would be true as we strive um, to be holy and Christ-like. And this is really what the book of Colossians is about. But not only the book of Colossians, but many of the New Testament epistles are about our sanctification, our change, our growth in holiness and Christ-likeness. And as we have seen so far in, in this book, in this letter, the Apostle Paul confronts the false teachings and erroneous views of spirituality and holiness, which were not only present in the region of Colossae, but were all throughout the Greco-Roman world. And so he writes to them to encourage them in their faith and to fortify them against these false teachings and the erroneous views of the gospel, of salvation, of God, of the person and works of Jesus Christ. And he um, instructs them in those things which... Uh, constitute true spirituality and holiness, how to pursue it through biblical sanctification, what the true gospel is, what salvation really is, who Jesus Christ really is. And 
he lays the doctrinal foundation for these principles, for these things in chapters 1 and 2, and then he gradually transitions to the implications and applications of these doctrines in chapters 3 and 4. And and you see this pattern in most of Paul's epistles and and even in um, the other uh, New Testament writers that there is there is doctrine in the first half or um, uh, generally, generally the first half of the book, and then there's practice in the second. There's, there's the, the doctrine applied. And so we see as he transitions from chapter 2 to chapter 3, we see this transition to the applications, the implications of these doctrines of salvation, of sanctification. And a few weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 to 4 in chapter 3 and saw two commands and two reasons for those commands to be carried out in pursuit of true holiness. That we are to seek Christ, or the things above. He says the things above, but that's really Christ, because we are united with Christ. And we are also to set our minds on Christ, because we will be glorified with Christ. These are positive commands, positive reasons, but now he shifts from these positive commands, these positive reasons in verses 1 to 4 to um, more of a a, a negative command, um, what not to do. He tells us what to do, what we are to seek in verses 1 to 4, and then now in verses 5 to 8, he tells us what we are, are not to do, what we are not to seek after, what we are to put off. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul also gives us two commands and two reasons for those commands and then two lists of sins concerning each command, all of which are divided up into two categories of sins. So we will look at this passage within the framework of those two categories of sins. First, he gives us the earthly sins to put off, verses 5 to 6. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And we see, he says, put to death what is earthly in you, earthly. And throughout uh, chapter 2, we see um, these themes of heavenly and earthly. Life and death, old and new, the old and new self, the old and new creation, that we are created new in Christ Jesus, that we are raised from death to newness of life in Him, that we are to um, not fix our eyes on what is earthly and what is down below and, and even on ourselves, but we are to fix our eyes, we are set our minds on things above, on, on, on Christ, on things in heaven, and so He gives us this command after telling us to seek the things above. He says, then put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is the command, the command to put these things to death. In one commentator, he writes this concerning Paul's commands. He says, although Paul rejects legalistic asceticism, he calls upon believers to become in practice what they are in principle, dead to sin and alive to God. There is a way of living that is incompatible with life in Christ. And Paul calls for rigorous departure from that old life. The old sins we used to walk in. 
And we see in, in these two verses three aspects of sin which are implied in this command. That first, we are to kill, to put to death what is earthly in us. And why? Because we have been raised from death to life. We've been raised to newness of life. We're no longer the old person we once were, dead in our transgressions and sin, but yet God has made us alive, therefore we are to put to death continually what earthly things remain in us. And I think um, some translations have it better than uh, I read through the and preach through the ESV, but I think the New King James has this a little bit better. It says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He, he's almost saying your, the, the things within you, the, your members, what is, what is earthly in you, those things upon the earth, those things that are earthy, that are carnal, Put it to death. Destroy it. The things that are common amongst um, unconverted um, people. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, in verse 11 to 13, he says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. As we are born again, as we are given um, new birth, and, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit regenerates us and takes out that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, and we see the world as it is, we see ourselves as we are, we see sin as it really is, and and we come to hate it, those things which we once loved. And we come to love those things which we once hated, the things of God, the spiritual things. And so we change. And as we change, we are to put to death the old man, those evil things, those deeds of the flesh. And we can only do that by the power of the Spirit. But we are to do that. We, we don't just... Um, you know, this easy believism that's in our, our culture. And it's been in our culture that we just, you know, raise a hand and walk an aisle and get our ticket stamped and then we go on living the way we were. That's, if that's you, if that's anybody, that's, chances are you're not really saved. Because if you've been changed, you will continue to change. Whereas, as, you know, many of the older translations uh, King James and, and the Old English translations, they, they say mortify, uh, uh, of utterly putting it to death, of destroying it. Mortify your remaining sin, what remains in you. Why? Because though the battle has been won by Christ Jesus, so He has defeated sin, death, and hell for us and, and paid our sin debt, there's still pockets of resistance remaining in our fallen flesh. We're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual battle. And, you know, there's a recent illustration of this. I learned not too long ago, um, I think it was right around 2005 or so, around that time, and, and um, I was finishing up my, my um, 
my four-year contract in the Marine Corps, and I, I learned a news article. There was a report that in one of those islands, I believe it is in the Philippines, in the, in the South Pacific, they found a Japanese soldier from World War II in his 90s. He had been surviving off the land, still in a sense thought that he was in war. Um, they had the Japanese government had to bring someone out to retrieve him and to tell him. It, he, he, in a sense, was still living as if there was a war. He was, in a sense, a, a pocket of resistance. So the war had been won. But here's this soldier still living and, and still with the, the will to fight. This is an illustration of our own fallen flesh. We could be saved for decades. And there could be still be some besetting sin that is just will not let go. It will not give up. It will continue to fight. It will survive as long as it can in our fallen flesh, in our hearts, in our minds. To keep us in bondage to sin. And we have to clear out those pockets of resistance. Even though the war has been won, there's pockets of resistance within our fallen flesh. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Though for most of us who have been born again, we're truly converted. We will go to heaven, not because of our own merits, not because of what we have done, but solely on the basis of the sacrifice and life of Jesus Christ and what He has done on our behalf. Yet we still sin. We are still prone to temptation. We still have besetting sins within us. We still have old sinful habits. and We must put those things to death. We must understand that the power of sin has been broken through Christ, that we have the Holy Spirit within us, and if the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, then we don't have to sin. We have the power to fight sin. We have the power to be holy. And that's what we are to do. We are to strive towards holiness and continue to fight sin and to bitterly and um, strivingly like, like just a, a committed athlete or soldier to kill sin, to put it to death. Why? Because sin is a serious thing. And it, because sin is so serious, we must take sin seriously. Because if we toy with sin or allow sinful desires to go unchecked and fester in our hearts and minds, they will destroy us. They will destroy our testimony. They will destroy our lives. They will destroy our families. They will destroy our churches. And if we live as if sin is no big deal, then chances are we might not be truly saved. Jesus said this in his 
Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is how we are to view sin, how we are to deal with sin, and not literally, we are not literally to pluck out our eyes, but we are to act in that manner, figuratively. That we are to do whatever it takes to fight sin and temptation. That if there's certain places and, and events and people that tempt us to sin, that we are to separate ourselves from those corrupting influences. We're to take sin seriously. Because if we don't, then that may be evidence that we truly are not saved. We're not to toy with sin. Sin is serious. In his commentary, Curtis Vaughn writes this, the verb necrosate, or necrosate um, which underlines this action put to death, it means literally to make dead. It is very strong. It suggests that we are not to simply suppress or control evil acts and attitudes. We are to wipe them out. Completely exterminate the old way of life. Slay utterly may express its force. The form of the verb makes clear that the action is to be undertaken decisively with a sense of urgency. Both the meaning of the verb and the force of the tense suggest a vigorous, painful act of personal determination. Alexander McLaren likens it to a man who, while working at a machine, gets his fingers drawn between rollers or caught in the belt, belting. Another minute, and he will be flattened to a shapeless, bloody mass. And so he catches up an axe lying by, and with his own arm, hacks off his own hand at the wrist. It is not easy or pleasant, but it is the only alternative to a horrible death. This is how we are to treat sin, those besetting sins that grip us. And yes, we, we, are not to, we are to be careful not to fall into legalism, not to swing the pendulum too far into asceticism, but there is a sense that if our TV or our computer or, or, um, causes us to sin, brings um, temptation that is too strong for us, then, then maybe we should get rid of it. Maybe we should turn it off for a while. Maybe we should disconnect the cable. Maybe we shouldn't be hanging out with certain people. Maybe we shouldn't be going to certain places. And, and for some of us, it may be that we need to quit our job and get a different job because the people in our workplace, we just can't be around because we're not strong enough to resist that temptation. We're to put sin to death. So we see this command to put it to death. And then now we see the content of the command. He gives us the command in the beginning of verse 5, and then he goes and he gives us this list, the content, what we are to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And there is a progression here in this list. 
And it's similar to what we will see in this second list in verse um, 8. There is a progression. Sexual immorality refers to any form of sexual sin. Any um, form outside of of, um, marriage between one man and one one woman. Um, Those sexual sins of the heart and the mind and those actions. And then impurity. One commentator writes, this term goes beyond sexual acts of sin to encompass evil thoughts and intentions as well. And then passion, the physical side of that vice, and evil desire, which is the mental side. And then covetousness, which in some translations it's rendered greed. It literally means to have more, but in the sexual sense, it's a, the insatiable desire to gain more, especially of those things which are forbidden. And then he says, Paul says, this is idolatry. To cap it all off, it's, it's idolatry. And so we see these are, in a sense, sinful behaviors revo- resulting from sinful desires. As, as one preacher put it, this is a perverted form of love. But what is so wrong about sexual immorality? On, on its face, we can see that it, it is wrong. There's almost a sense that, that many people know deep down because God's law is written on our hearts that, that sex is to just be between a husband and a wife. That the, the, in a sense, the, the, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. That's, that, that's the only place, the only proper context for, for human sexuality. But what's so wrong about it? About sexual immorality, about... Um, the other things which our culture says are good. First, it perverts and it corrupts God's design and purpose for sex. That human sexuality, and for most of us, we we could see um, the purpose, and and maybe we've been taught that the purpose of human sexuality is for procreation, for children, to be fruitful and multiply, and certainly that is... um, one of the main reasons, but it's not the primary reason. The primary reason for human sexuality is unity. That is, even way back in Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, it says, um, they shall become one flesh. They shall be one. And it, it, it mirrors, in a sense, the, the Trinity, that there is unity in diversity. And that's where the physical union of a man and his wife um, promote uh, a greater emotional and spiritual union. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that you're not to present your members or be united to a prostitute, the cult prostitutes in their age, because you're uniting Christ to a prostitute. There's something deeper that happens in physical sex. It's something deeper, a deeper union, and that, that's what it was meant for, unity, and then procreation. But sexual immorality, it not only perverts and corrupts God's design and purpose for sex, but it rebels against God's design and purpose for men and women. We think of, in our culture, homosexuality, transgenderism, bestiality, all these horrible, horrible um, depraved forms of sexual immorality. And, and they will paint it 
they will make the excuse that it's a matter of preference. It's, it's not a matter of preference. It's not. It's a matter of rebelling against God's design and purpose for sex. And, and think about this. Think about this. If homosexuality were really about sexual preference, what you desire, albeit a perverted preference, then why would homosexual men act feminine? Think about that. If they were truly attracted to men, then they would all act masculine. If that's what they were really attracted to, they would all act masculine. And the same for uh, homosexual women. If they are really attracted to other women as a sexual preference, then they would all act feminine. But they don't. Homosexual men act feminine. They don't act masculine. And homosexual women, they, they drift towards acting masculine, not feminine. Deep down, what's happening in the heart is they are rebelling against God's design and purpose for their lives. That they are, as a man, is to be masculine, and a woman is to be feminine. And they manifest that rebellion in their sexual immorality. It goes deeper than just a sexual preference. That's a lie. They're rebelling against God's design and purpose for them in their being. They say, you know, God, you made me in such a way, but I don't want to live that way. I don't want to act that way. I want to do things different. You made me a man, but I'm not going to act like a man. You made me a woman, but I'm not going to be a woman. I'm going to be who I want to be. And this goes into transgenderism in our day and age. That It's the rebellion in the heart that I'm going to decide who and what I am. I, I'm in a sense going to create myself or recreate myself and determine who I am. And sexual immorality flows out of that rebellion. Even if it's in the, the, the heterosexual forms of fornication. That no, I'm not going to wait for marriage. I'm not going to commit to one person for the rest of my life. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do whatever I feel is right. Whatever I feel is good. I'm going to obey every lust and temptation of my flesh and just because, you know, my life is my life and I, I can live however I want to live. And who are you to tell me how to live? And well, God's your creator and He designed you for a specific purpose and He created marriage and human sexuality for specific purposes. And if we um, give way to sexual immorality, especially as Christians, that's a horrible, wretched sin that we are to put away, that we are to put to death at the root level, in our heart, in our mind. But third, sexual immorality, it, it not only perverts and corrupts God's design, it not only rebels against his design and purpose for men and women, but it diminishes and defaces the image of God. Because in order to be sexually immoral, you in a sense objectify another person. 
you reduce them to an object for your own gratification, for your own lust. You deface and you diminish the image of God. That is a person, that is a being, that is someone with hopes and dreams, with a soul. And they're not to be treated as an object to fulfill your own lust. And yet, most of us, I'm sure if we are honest, we have entertained those thoughts, if not acted out upon those thoughts of sexual immorality in our past. Maybe some of us still do even if it's only within the heart and the mind. We diminish and we deface the image of God within others to objectify them for sexual gratification. And what's interesting, you know, it's interesting in the military, and not just our military, but all militaries and all wars throughout the history of war, soldiers do the same thing, but not in a sexual sense, but in order to kill the enemy, you diminish him, you objectify him, you deface him, you um, almost, in a sense, uh, you take away his humanity so that it's easier for you to kill him. And so that's why in every war, every battle, every military, you, you see these slurs about the enemy. You're defacing them, the image of God. You're diminishing their humanity so that it's easier for you to kill them. Same thing happens with sexual immorality. You objectify a person. You diminish their, the image of God within them. You deface that image of God so that you can use them to fulfill your own lusts. So what's so horrible about sexual immorality? You do not honor the image of God. You do not honor God when you partake in sexual immorality. It's perverted. It's horrible. It's horrendous. And we need to put it to death. And we also see not only that these sinful behaviors result from sinful desires because he goes from the act to the thoughts and the desires to the idolatry. And he shows us that the behaviors not only result from sinful desires, but the sinful desires, they emanate from sinful worship. This is idolatry. We, we are not, no longer worshiping God when we engage in these things, but we are worshiping our own lusts. We are worshiping the creation. We are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We are not finding our greatest joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in God and what He has for us, but we're determining that our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest fulfillment is in the things of this world and all that this world has to offer me and, and satiating every fleshly desire within me. This is basically what's happening. All sexual immorality and all sin is essentially idolatry. It's a worship issue. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This happens. Every time we sin, whatever the sin is, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We are saying that 
God is not the most valuable thing. God will not give me the greatest joy. God will not give me the greatest satisfaction. God will not fulfill me. But this created thing will. Whether it's another person for sexual gratification, or it's money, or it's things, or it's adventure, excitement, vacation, whatever you name is the thing that you go after. You are, in a sense, worshiping that thing. It's idolatry. And so we see this command to put these sins to death. We see the the content of the command. And then third, we see the reason for the command. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And most, most other translations would have upon the sons of disobedience. The ESV does not have it, and I think the ESV is wrong in this sense. It should have it because there's some manuscripts that do not have it. But some of you may have Bibles which say, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And it's important that it says that, not only that the wrath of God is coming, because it really is, and if you are outside of Christ, you ought to fear that. But if you are in Christ, you still ought to also, in a sense, be fearful of God's judgment because when it says upon the sons of disobedience, that was once us. We used to be sons of disobedience and God's wrath is going to be poured out upon all the sons of disobedience, all those who are outside of Christ, and therefore we should not do what they do. We should not act the way they act. We should no longer live the way we used to live. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God hates sin. He's going to pour His wrath out upon all sin. God will judge all sin. He will bring every act into judgment. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, and and Jesus says He will judge you for every careless word that comes out of your mouth. And that judgment will either be poured out upon you forever in hell, or it's poured out upon Christ on Calvary for those who repented from their sins and believed upon Him as the only sacrifice for their sins. God will judge every single sin down to the heart level, down to the thoughts and emotions and the intentions of the heart. William Barclay said this, the wrath of God is simply the rule of the universe that we will reap what we sow and that no one ever escapes the consequences of sin. The wrath of God and the moral order of the universe are one and the same thing. There must be justice. There must be judgment. There must be punishment for sin. Sin cannot go unchecked. It will be judged. It will be punished. It's either you're going to bear that punishment in hell or Jesus bears it for you. But you have to make that choice and you need to Come to Christ if you have not already. God's judgment is serious. You know, Jesus, if it wasn't for Jesus' teaching, we would know very little about hell. Only at the end of Isaiah, there's a couple references, and 
Other than that, you don't know too much until the New Testament, until Jesus comes, and Jesus describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is complete and utter darkness, a separation from God, a eternal fire that burns forever, eternal destruction. Matthew Henry wrote this in his commentary concerning this command to put to death what is earthly in us. He said this, since it is our duty to set our affections upon heavenly things, it is our duty to mortify our members which are upon the earth and which naturally incline us to the things of the world. Mortify them. That is, subdue the vicious habits of mind which prevailed in your Gentile state. Kill them. Suppress them. As you do weeds or vermin which spread and destroy all about them. Or as you kill an enemy who fights against you and wounds you. Your members which are upon the earth, either the members of the body which are the earthly part of us, or the corrupt affections of the mind which lead us to earthly things, these are members of the body of death which must be continually put to death and destroyed until Christ either returns or calls us home and gives us a new body free of sin. We are to continually fight sin and kill it. So we have seen the first category of sins in this passage, the earthly sins to put to death, and now we go to the second category, the former sins to put away. The former sins to put away in verse 7 and 8. Paul writes, And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. There's these former sins that, as Paul says, these you too once walked when you were living in them. We used to do all these things. And if we did not commit the act, we probably thought the thought. We had those desires. And certainly, you know, it may be for some of us that that first list of sexual immorality is, wasn't really a huge problem for you. Maybe you were um, generally pure, but certainly if that, if you can't relate to the first list, you can certainly relate to the second list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And he first, he gives us the reason for this command. That we used to walk in these sins. We used to commit these sins. We used to live in these sins until Christ came, until He saved us. And so if He saved us from these sins, then how can we still walk in them? How can we still live in the sins which He died for, which He delivered us from, those sins which um, warrant an eternity in hell? We need to put these things away. We need to live the new life that He has called us to. We've been born again in Christ, and therefore we need to live accordingly. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And yet that, that recreation, that new creation, it starts from the inside out with the new heart. And then we must renew our minds, and this 
then that works outwardly to our words and our behaviors. But there's still some things. There's still the old man is still within us. And the old man still rears his ugly head once in a while. The monster, as some have said, he comes and he shows himself. We are to put, a, put these things away. We're, literally, it, the command literally means to strip off. As if you're, you're wearing an, an old garment or, or a, a uniform, per se, that you always wore. Robes. Uh, and, and in the ancient world, people didn't have a whole lot of clothes, unless you're rich. And you probably wore the same thing for a long time. And, and when you come to faith, you're, in a sense, you're to strip that all away. Completely new. Strip it off. This, there's a parallel passage in um, Ephesians 4. Because right here in Colossians 3, we'll see later on that Paul starts to get into this principle of put off, put on. But, it, but it's really shown in more detail here in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is this concept of sanctification, of growth and holiness, um, of putting off and putting on of stripping off the old self. And in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, it says this, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true holy righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on in probably a verse that many of you have memorized, and if you have not, you should memorize it. It's a verse that, that relates exactly to uh, Colossians 3.8. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And in Ephesians 4.29, I like the beginning when he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And, and that is the, the basis of this list. That is the uh, foundational principle behind this list that all this, these evil thoughts and desires that begin with anger, they result in slander and obscene talk that comes out of the mouth. It's, as Jesus said, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles you. It begins in the heart, but it comes out of the mouth. And we are to let nothing corrupting come out of the mouth. And, and, and when we speak in such a way, we are tearing people down. We are corrupting people. We are corrupting ourselves. It's evidence of the fall, that the corruption of the fall spread throughout all of man, throughout all creation. And, and when we let these words come out of us, we are living according to that former manner of life, the corruption, the curse of the fall, our sinful, depraved nature. That we are tearing people down rather than building them up. And so he tells us, he gives us a command to put these things away. He, he, he tells us the reason for the command and then he gives us the content of the command. What we are to put away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. An obscene talk. These are, as the, as the first list of sexual immorality was mostly sinful behaviors and sinful actions that emanated from sinful desires, 
This is almost reversed where we have the sinful desires that will then result in sinful emotions and then sinful words. It's a, whereas the first list was a perverted form of love, this is a perverted form of hate. Because there is a sense that even in Ephesians 5, it says, be angry and yet do not sin. Now, there is a sense where there is a legitimate hate and there is a legitimate angry, anger. There, there's things that in this world that we should be angry about. There's things in this world that we should hate. We should hate abortion. We should hate um, uh, human trafficking and pedophilia and, and, and all the horrible sins that happen in this world. We should hate them. We should be angry about them. Because God is angry about them. But what we should not be angry about is, is things that pertain to us. Our desires, our comforts, our will. Anger has to do with a, a dissonance. A dissonance is, is the opposite of harmony. It's a musical term that, that things aren't harmonized. They aren't in harmony. It has to do with transgression of a law. But usually it's, it's our law. It's that reality doesn't work out according to our expectations, according to our desires, according to what we want. And so in that instance, we get angry. We get frustrated. There's dissonance. I always use the illustration of road rage because it's so appropriate. We have this, we go to the freeway, down the freeway or down a highway and we have this expectation that you know, everything's just going to go smoothly and we're going to arrive to our destination on time, maybe even sooner than we expected. And then something happens. There's a traffic jam. There's an accident. There's um, dumb drivers. And then there's dissonance because reality is not going the way we wanted it to go. It's not going the way we expected it to go. Someone has transgressed our law. And so we get angry. They're not behaving according to how we want them to behave. And, and that anger in that moment, it's all about us. It's not about God. It's not about His law. It's not about His righteousness. We desire our own way. These are sinful emotions. And then they manifest themselves in sinful, sinful words. Because it just comes out of the mouth. We, we stub our toe or... Uh, you know, hit our hand or we get in a, a traffic jam and, and just something just flies out of our mouth. Some angry word. James writes about this. James chapter 3, he talks about the tongue and what we do with the tongue. And just like, you know, what, what Jesus said, that out of the mouth come all these defilements. James in chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people, who are made in the likeness of God. And, and in the tongue, and, and the tongue's not really the problem. 
It's the heart that's controlling the tongue. The tongue gives evidence of what's in the heart. And yet, even if there is a bunch of anger and hostility in our heart, as James would um, allude to, there's very few people who can tame the tongue so that it does not come out. It comes out. And so, we see these categories of sins, those earthly sins to put to death and the former sins to put away. And all throughout this passage in chapter 3 and verses 5 to 8, we see what we are commanded to do. And we know why we are to do it. Even as we read it, we don't even have to really study it that much. We know what we are to do. It's clear to put to death these sins, to put these other sins away. But for most of us, the question is this. We know what we are to do. We know why we are to do it. But the question is, how exactly do we put sin to death? How exactly do we go about doing this? Because I've tried so many times, and I stumble, and I fail. And it seems like, uh, you know, I I live um, in Romans chapter 7. The the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the evil things I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And yet we are commanded to put these sins to death. So how do we do it? Well, there's, there's several passages that show us, and, and, and they're, in a sense, uh, Paul already showed us in verses 1 to 4 that we are to seek those things that are above, set our minds on things above, that we are to value and treasure and strive for those things above, not the things on earth. But... Puritan John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, which many have written other books since then and using his principles, and his principles are really in Scripture, he says this, he says, These two approaches then will work for any troubling compulsion which perverts and corrupts our nature. First, weaken its indwelling temperament through which it attracts, entices, and drives us to evil and to rebel against God. This is done by implanting and cherishing a habitual principle of grace that stands in direct opposition to it and runs and ruins it. By implanting and developing humility, pride is weakened. By patience, anger is weakened. By purity of mind and conscience, immorality is weakened. By heavenly mindedness, love of this world is weakened. Second, We need to promptly, eagerly, and with the power of the Spirit, fight with a battle cry against this lust by all the ways and with all the means and aid that are at our disposal. Success largely depends on these two things. What he's saying is that we need to starve our temptation and our sin by making no provision for the flesh, by focusing on those heavenly Um, desires, those heavenly things, those good things, those righteous things, the things of Christ, the things that Paul lays out in verses 1 to 4. We are to strive after the opposite of these sins, as John Owen says. We are to replace evil thoughts and desires with righteous thoughts and desires. We have to starve temptation and sin and crowd it out with positive, holy thoughts, desires, and actions, and then aggressively pursue Christ-likeness. That's how we put sin to death. It starts in the heart, 
and it works itself out. So what, what do we desire? What do we focus on? What do we treasure? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be, and your words and your actions will follow. But secondly, we do need to separate ourselves from corrupting influences. If we are not strong enough to withstand those corrupting influences, then we need to, we need to separate ourselves from those corrupting influences. And yet, you know, there's maybe some of you who you may feel as if there aren't any gross sins within you, within you that need to be put to death. Maybe you don't see yourself in these categories. Maybe you don't see yourself as bad as Scripture paints you. And I would ask you, if you're not actively putting sin to death or you don't desire holiness, then it's probably because you're not saved. Apostle Paul calls the Corinthians to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith because the way they're acting, the way they're behaving all throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, because the, the, the state of the church, he tells some of them, you need to examine yourselves because your behaviors, your actions, they do not line up with the testimony of a believer. Yes, we stumble and we fail and we fall into sin, but the question is, are, are we fighting sin? Are we striving to put it to death? Are we striving to put off those former sins? And Paul gives the Corinthians this warning. 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. The wrath of God is coming on such people. You need to turn from your sin, turn to God, turn to, to seek Him while you may be found, to call upon Him while He is near, to repent from these sins. If these sins characterize you, and there's, there's, no, uh, there's no evidence of holy, righteous behaviors or thoughts or desires, you need to examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. If this characterizes you. But if you are actively trying to put these sins to death, then you are, chances are, almost, almost affirmatively, I could say that you're in the kingdom. You're born again. Because only a truly regenerate person would fight these sins. And even as Paul gives this list and this warning to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, that not the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexual, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, then he gives this, this hope. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For most of us, we can look at these lists of sin and we can see ourselves. If not currently, in our past. And yet, by the grace of God, we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we no longer walk in those sins. We fight those sins tooth and nail. 
We put off those former sins. We strive for holiness because God has made us holy. He's redeemed us. He's washed us. And because He's washed us, because He's made us new, we celebrate. We celebrate what He has done for us. That because as sinful as we were, He showed us grace. There was no way that we could merit salvation, no way that we could be righteous in His sight. And so God sent His one and only Son to take on human flesh, to to live a life that none of us could live and to die the death that we all deserve to die. And so we celebrate that. We celebrate that as He has commanded us to in in, in this ordinance of the Lord's Supper to celebrate his sacrifice. And so, as we prepare to celebrate what he did on our behalf, let us bow our heads, we'll prepare our hearts and minds, and then the men will direct you to um, take of the elements, and then we will celebrate what Christ did on our behalf together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. These are hard words. These are convicting words. These are challenging words, but these are true words. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. We need to walk in light of what you have done for us. We need to put to death what is earthly in us. We can't continue to allow sin to fester. Help us, Lord. Help us to see those grievous things within us. Show us. Help us to examine ourselves that we would be honest, that we would also examine ourselves not according to our own subjective reasoning or the standards of this world, but according to the perfect standard of your word. That we may view ourselves rightly and and see what what is abhorrent within us and to put it to death, to turn from it that we may be pleasing to you. And so, Lord, help us to examine ourselves, and especially now as we come to celebrate what Christ did for us in redeeming us. In his name we pray. Amen.